Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk. Featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders. All set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Frederick Monk, an inoffensive wages clerk at a small decorating firm who was bludgeoned to death by an unknown assailant inside of a locked office. The attack was brutal, but nothing was stolen. So was this a robbery, a murder, or something else? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 114, The Incompetence of John Carragher. Today, I'm standing in Whitcomb Street, WC2, one street south of the Chinatown nightclub, where David Knight's death sparked a gangland hit. Two streets southeast, of the back alley in Piccadilly, where the Blackout Ripper's killing spree was cut short. One street west of the attack on Desmond O'Byrne, and a few doors east of the murder at the Royal Automobile Club. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated within the shadow of the National Gallery, Whitcomb Street is an anonymous little side street within a few seconds walk of Trafalgar Square and Leicester Square. Like many parts of the West End, Wickham Street wasn't designed, it evolved in an ad hoc way. Hence this gloomy little one-way road consists of a monstrous mess of new builds for big businesses, but also some little family-run shops such as a newsagent's, a sandwich bar, and of course, a massage parlour, all hidden behind a line of four-storey flat-fronted houses from the late 1800s. Being within sight of the horrible chimes of the Swiss centre glockenspiel, the squeal of over-sugared sprogs wailing into M&M world, and the perpetual chin scratch as anyone over 40 thinks, hmm, 
Wasn't that branch of Pret, the former sandwich shop owned by Glamrock pop star and convicted paedophile Gary Glitter? Wickham Street is the place that London forgot. Having changed little since 1968, behind the white walls of 17 to 19 Wickham Street once stood a decorator's firm called F. Cope & Co. A busy and respected employer of local tradesmen with a handy do-it-yourself shop on the left of the ground floor, the entrance to Hobson Court on the right, leading to a timber yard, a plumber's merchant's and an ironmonger's behind. And between both was a street door leading up to four offices on the first floor for the managing directors, the secretary and the wages clerk. With a steady passage of workmen heading off to jobs, although there was a constant cacophony of noise, owing to the friendly banter, the movement of building materials and the bashing of hammers, it was a pretty uneventful place. Except on Friday afternoons between 4pm and 5pm, when all of the labourers would receive their weekly wages. And what started as just a regular day soon ended in tragedy. As it was here, on Friday the 29th of March 1968, at roughly 4.10pm, that a mild-mannered wages clerk called Frederick Monk was murdered. But who would want him dead? And why? For the police, the death of Frederick Monk was a baffling mystery. It was either a robbery, only nothing was stolen, a brutal attack, only with no motive, or the hate-filled killing of an innocent man. Frederick Ernest Monk, known as Freddy, was born in 1911 in Hoxton, East London. As the eldest son of Frederick Senior, a druggist, and Ada, a teacher, with one older sister, also called Ada. Wisely waiting until their mid to late thirties to raise a family, when their incomes and home life had a greater stability, Freddie's childhood was happy, loving, and although working class, they never needed to struggle. Having passed his school certificate with flying colors, with a passion for maths, Freddie was a bright and meticulous young man who was widely regarded by his pals as honest, reliable, and trustworthy. As the epitome of his parents, always being sweet and polite, Freddie was described by everyone who knew him as one of the nicest people you could ever hope to meet. A gentleman who wouldn't harm a fly. Raised to appreciate the simple things in life, such as a hearty bowl of porridge for breakfast, a cheese and pickle sandwich for lunch, and a home-cooked meal for tea. He was never a man of extravagance. Renting a single bed in a Streatham guesthouse, he wore practical suits, which were always clean and pressed with matching socks, ties and hankies. The short crescent of hair around his ears was neatly trimmed every week by his girlfriend of several years, and he rarely went out. Instead, he enjoyed the solitude of reading a good book, supping a nice ale, and listening to classical music on the wireless. Being barely five foot three, and as little as he was portly, 
having broken his left leg many moons ago. Although he had a very obvious limp, he never let it get him down, as wherever he walked, he always whistled. As a 56-year-old bachelor of modest means, for the last nine years, he had worked as a wages clerk at F. Cope & Co. He was dependable, precise, friendly, and as a scrupulous man whose work ran like a well-oiled machine. His employers and the tradesmen respected him and all knew what to expect. Friday the 29th of March 1968 was a very regular day. It was payday for the firm's labourers. So as 25 men in paint and plaster splattered overalls milled about in the timber yard, Freddie prepared the wage packets. At 2pm, as per usual, he entered William Deacon's bank at nearby Nine Waterloo Place. He withdrew £639, roughly £11,000 today, evenly spread the bundles between the seven pockets of his brown press suit so they didn't bulge and with his weak leg slightly dragging behind. At 2.35pm, he re-entered F. Cope & Co. via the street door on Whitcomb Street. He wasn't followed, harassed, or unnerved. At 4pm, Terence Bacon, the company's co-director, passed Freddie on the stairs, where he stated, I'm just going to the post office, Mr. Bacon. I shan't be long. With the St. Martin's branch just one road away, Freddie returned at 4.10pm as witnessed by Harold Payne, the co-director, and overheard by Alexandra Hilgert, the typist, who all had adjoining offices on the first floor. In his pockets were six sheets of postage stamps worth £5 and a £25 float in assorted change. Again, he wasn't followed. Behind a plain door marked private, Freddy's office was a small eight-foot square room with a single locked window, a door with a Yale lock, so when it closed, it locked itself, and there was no entry from the offices on either side. As expected, it was neat and organized, with a set of cabinets, a typewriter, a safe, and by the window, where the light was good, a desk with a set of drawers underneath. The payday routine ran like clockwork. At 4.20pm, with the supervisors and foremen taking priority over the charge hands and the labourers, one by one, each tradesman knocked on the locked door. They identified themselves through the frosted glass panel, as although F. Cope & Co. always rehired familiar faces, as a growing business with so many jobs to fulfil, new workmen were often needed. Here they waited to be greeted and to be let in by Freddy. At his desk, by the window, he ticked off their name on a spreadsheet and handed each man a pre-sealed wage packet from his drawer. Every Friday was exactly the same. Except for that Friday. At 4.20pm, Raymond McShee, the painting supervisor who ran a paint store out back, knocked on the door but got no reply. So he returned to the timber yard and waited 
as more workmen congregated. By 4.45 p.m., as a small group formed on the first floor, knocking louder but to no avail, with no signs of Freddy, Terence Bacon tracked down a spare set of keys to the wages clerk's office to pay the workers' wages himself. At 4.50 p.m., Terence unlocked the door. At 4.51 p.m., Raymond called the police. At 4.56 p.m., PC Albert Wright arrived at Whitcomb Street and sealed off the crime scene. And although an ambulance was called, at 7.45 p.m., Dr. Jeffrey Diamond of West End Central certified that Frederick Monk was dead. Inside his locked office, the door showed no signs of forced entry. The window was shut from within, the cabinets hadn't been ransacked, and the safe was unlocked. But nothing was stolen. Not the £639 in the safe, the £800 worth of wage packets in the drawer, the £25 float, or the £5 sheets of stamps. His spreadsheet and pen was just how he had left it, neat and organized on his desk by the window. Only Freddy wasn't missing. He had been right there, in his office, all along. Slumped in a crumpled heap, with his legs all twisted, Freddy was found lying face down on the floor. Scattered about his buckled body were several sheets of stamps an open pocketbook, and a few strewn coins, as his killer had pulled each of his pockets inside out, leaving the white material exposed. Freddy's death was brutal and sadistic. Whoever had murdered Freddy had caught him off guard and had attacked him from behind. As with no defensive wounds, a swift blow from a heavy blunt tool had fractured his right shoulder. Disorientated, as this semi-disabled man staggered unsteadily to his feet, his killer swung what is believed to be a carpenter's hammer hard across his head, which impacted with his left ear and splintered his skull. And as the barely conscious man collapsed to the floor, lying prone, immobile and helpless, with the inch-wide steel ball of the hammer his killer had caved in the top of his skull two more times, as a steady stream of blood pulled about his head and torso. So by the time the door was opened, Freddy was already dead. No fingerprints were found except Freddy's. Nothing was stolen. No one suspicious was seen entering or exiting the premises, and there was no sign of a break-in. Of the 23 staff and tradesmen in the yard and offices at the time of the murder, every known person was accounted for and they all had a corroborative alibi. Nobody heard a struggle, nobody saw his attacker, and no weapon was found. The police were baffled by this violent attack with no obvious motive. But then who would want to murder such a lovely man as Frederick Monk? His name was John Carragher. 
He knew the location, the victim and his routines. With his plan in place, he would enter the premises without a key. He would attack without sound, leave no fingerprints, weapons or clues and would escape a locked room without being seen by anyone, leaving the detectives baffled as to his motive. Although he may seem like a criminal mastermind, in truth, he was incompetent. John Carragher was born in Dublin on the 24th of January 1944, but was raised in the town of Castle Blaney on the border of Northern Ireland. Described as a badly behaved boy, with jittery limbs, grinding teeth and wide staring eyes, his criminal career began aged 10 when he stole from his family's farm. Educated at Castle Blaney School, he hated his teachers, was often truant, and unable to focus, he quit with no qualifications. Later, it was found that he had an IQ of just 84, halfway between average and retarded. Age 13, he ran away from home. Age 14, he enlisted in the boys' brigade of the Enniskillen Fusiliers until he was discharged on medical grounds. And age 16, as his own parents had testified in court that he was beyond control, he was sent to Borstal and he never saw his family ever again. As a restless, semi-literate boy, whose right leg had been broken and set so many times that just like Frederick Monk, it had left him with a limp. Burdened by an unruly, uncouth attitude, he survived on a series of low-paid short-term jobs as a painter and labourer, all interspersed with frequent stints in prison. 16th of April 1960, age 16, he was bound over for one year at Liverpool Magistrates Court for stealing wallets. 9th of May 1960, charged with four counts of theft, he was sent to St. Patrick's Borstal in Londonderry. But having been unsuccessfully retrained and found guilty of two further counts of theft, on the 21st of July 1960, he was sent to prison for 16 weeks. That's three convictions in just four months. Moving to England in February 1962, although he planned to start a new life under several aliases, such as John Kavanagh and John Cash, he struggled to hold down a part-time job, and as a hopelessly inept thief who was easily caught owing to bad planning and a violent temper, he often returned to prison. 1st of March 1962, he stole a handbag from Crewe Station and was fined £15. 11th of March 1962, charged with burglary, he was sent back to Borstal for 10 months. Five weeks after his release, charged with shopbreaking and larceny in Ballam, he was sentenced to four more months in prison. Three months later, charged again with burglary, he served a further 13 months. And just three weeks after his release, he served a further 13 months for burglary. And whilst in Wandsworth Prison, he attacked an inmate with a hammer. 
released from prison on the 21st of December 1967. As the 24-year-old drifter, with no money, no family, and without the skills to hold down a career, the guidance to be good, or the intelligence to plan and execute a flawless robbery, John Carragher made a conscious decision to lead a normal and productive life. On the 1st of January 1968, he was hired as a decorator at F. Copen Co. Sadly, the job wouldn't last, as having turned up on his first day at work six hours late, and with his work described only as satisfactory, he was kept on as Raymond McShay was one man short. But by the end of the month, he had been handed his cards and laid off. Over the next three months, he flitted between jobs, wearing his usual blue cardigan, blue trousers, black shirt and black shoes, all of which were flecked with paint. And as the tools of his trade, he carried a navy blue tool bag full of brushes, spanners, hacksaws and a 16-inch steel hammer. During the 25 days he had worked at F. Cope & Co., he met Frederick Monk five times. Once on the day he was hired, thrice on subsequent Fridays to receive his wage, and once on the day he left to be handed his final pay. They never met socially, they had no prior connections, and as Freddie wasn't involved in the hiring and firing of tradesmen, John had no reason to hate him. And yet, on Friday the 29th of March 1968, John Carragher would brutally batter Frederick Monk to death. If this was a robbery, then why did John leave £639 in the safe, £800 in wage slips, a £25 float and £5 in stamps? If this was a murder, why attack him during the day in his office at a place where they were both known when Frederick lived alone? And why did John empty all of Frederick's pockets? What was he after? What did he take? And what was so important that it drove him to kill for the very first time? John Carragher wasn't a man with a plan. He was an angry, restless and impatient boy with very little intelligence, very few morals and an inability not to get caught owing to his incompetence. On Sunday the 17th of March 1968, just two weeks prior, in the Queen's Arm public house in Pimlico, John spilled his whole plan to George Cop, a painter and ex-con he had met just the night before. George wasn't interested, as he'd promised his girlfriend he was going to go straight, and the two men fell out when John's sexual advances were rejected by George's girlfriend, Jeanette, at which John shouted, even if I have to wait a few months, I'll get you when you're by yourself and no one will know what has happened to you. All of which was overheard by an off-duty policeman. On the morning of Friday the 29th of March 1968, the day of Freddy's death, carrying his navy blue tool bag and wearing his usual painter's scrubs, John left his small rented lodging in Mary Sexton's boarding house 
at 25 St George's Street in Pimlico. His rent of £3.10 shillings was due the next day, and although he had the money to pay for it, he told the landlady that he planned to go to Ireland for a little holiday first. Miraculously still employed, even though his attendance was poor and his work was only satisfactory, having been hired by Woodman's, a rival firm, to paint the walls of 214 Oxford Street by Oxford Circus. At 12.45pm that day, John Carragher said to his colleague, It's a beautiful day, I think I'm going to have some fun. And with that, he walked out, leaving behind his final day's pay and his toolkit. But tucked into the waistband of his trousers, he had stashed a 16-inch hammer. And although its heavy rounded head was sticky with spots of paint, soon it would be spattered with blood. Over those next few hours, where he went, we don't know. What he did, we don't know. But we do know what he didn't do. Had he planned this robbery carefully, he'd have known that Freddy's payday routine always ran like a well-oiled machine. It's what made him so respected and trusted as the wages clerk for F. Cope & Co. At 2pm every Friday, Freddy would collect roughly £600 from William Deacon's bank in Waterloo Place. He'd evenly spread the notes between the pockets of his brown press suit, and with his crippled leg dragging behind, it would take him roughly 10 minutes to limp back to Whitcomb Street. With a disguise, a surprise, and a few choice words. Right there and then, John could have stolen the lot. But he didn't. At 4pm, as per usual, Freddy headed off to the post office in St. Martin Street to collect six sheets of stamps and a £25 float in assorted change. It was only one road away from F. Cope & Co and the side streets were dark and secluded. So again, there and then, he could have stolen the lot, but he didn't. It wasn't for a brilliant reason or owing to a personal beef. He just didn't think of it. John Carragher wasn't caught because he was too clever. He only got away with it owing to pure luck and coincidence. At 4.10pm, as expected, Freddy returned to F. Cope & Co and entered via the street door, as followed by John. The staff were in their offices, the tradesmen were in the yard, no one was on the first floor landing, and John was just another paint-spattered workman, milling around and waiting for his wages. So how did John get into Freddy's locked office? Simple. He knocked. Why did Freddy open the door? Easy. He knew him. Hi, Freddy. It's John Carragher. But why did Freddy let John in when he didn't work there anymore? Well, Freddy wouldn't know that, as he didn't do any of the hiring or firing. So as the crews changed every week and mistakes often got made... The only way to check it was on his spreadsheet. Ah, oh, that's strange. I should be on the sheet. And as both Freddy and John 
entered the locked office. As the door closed, the Yale lock clicked shut. With the door marked as private, the landing empty, the other office doors closed, and the workmen patiently waiting in the yard until Freddy was ready. No one would disturb them for at least five minutes. Keen to get to the root of the problem, and to work out why John, whose name and face he recognised, wasn't on his list. As Freddy leaned over the spreadsheet, from behind, John attacked him with a hammer. The first strike struck Freddy's right shoulder, sending him slumping onto the desk with an unexpected and confusing pain. Struggling to steady himself with the wasted muscles of his crippled left leg, before Freddy could even stand or scream, John struck again, smashing the half-kilo hammer across the back of his head, splitting his skull from ear to eye. So as the brute force of the blow spun his body 180 degrees, as his legs buckled from under him, Freddy collapsed in a crumpled, messy heap. Freddy meant nothing to John. He didn't know him, and he didn't care. So to ensure that this one and only witness could never identify him. With two hard fast blows, John struck Freddy over the back of the head with the heavy curved ball of the hammer. So hard were the strikes that his skull split open, his blood pooled, his brain swelled, and lying face down on the floor, it smashed his nose and eye socket. With blood in his throat, Freddy lived for a few minutes more, but lay paralyzed as John pulled his pockets inside out and searched for the one thing he wanted, the key to the safe. He was so fixated on finding it, he missed the wage packets, the float and the stamps. And had he looked, he would have seen that the key was in the lock, the money was in the safe, and the safe was open. But he didn't. At 4.20pm, Raymond McShay knocked on the door to get the wages for his crew, but got no reply. Inside, hunched over Freddy, John waited until Raymond had left and fled empty-handed. His escape was simple, as leaving via the quiet street door rather than the busy backyard. No one noticed another tradesman exiting this well-known painting and decorating firm, spattered with stains and holding a hammer on payday. So by the time that Freddy was found, he was already dead. But it was John's lack of planning which became his downfall. With no witnesses, fingerprints, weapon or obvious motive, the police took a logical approach to the case and interviewed every current and former employee of F. Cope & Co. Everyone was accounted for, except one. Searching his lodging, they found his clothes, shoes and a towel, all smeared with blood. The next day, John fled to Belfast. He did a little shopping, watched Cool Hand Luke at the cinema, flew back on the 2nd of April 
and was arrested one week later. When asked why he'd fled the country, he simply said, I didn't. I went to Ireland because it was a nice weekend. And although he bragged to the police that he had spent £150, we know that nothing was stolen. The decorated George Cop, who two weeks prior had already informed the police that a man had propositioned him regarding a robbery at F. Cope & Co., positively identified John. During his interview, not being the sharpest tool in the box, John said, I didn't kill Freddie Monk at Cope's, even though the police hadn't mentioned the victim's name or the location. And although no weapon was found, John Carragher was tried at the Old Bailey on the 24th of June 1968. He pleaded not guilty to both robbery and murder, charges of which, just three years earlier, may have resulted in a death sentence. But with capital punishment having been abolished, on the 9th of July 1968, he was sentenced to life in prison. He served his time, his whereabouts are unknown, and whether he adopted a new alias is uncertain. All we know is that for the sake of a few pounds and a little holiday, a good man called Frederick Monk was murdered. The only reason he died was because of where he worked. And the only reason he was killed was because of the incompetence of John Carragher. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Up next, we have a lot of extra details about the case. We have a quiz, a chat about tea, possibly a moment where I will grumble about a person or a boat going by. And this shall all be consumed over a nice cup of tea and a little biscuit or two. Possibly two. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Kimberly Anderson and Lisa Morgan. I thank you both. With an extra thank you to Mugwar, who donated to the Murder Mile Cake and Cood Fund via the supporter app in the show notes. I thank you all. Plus a welcome to all new listeners and a thank you to all long-term listeners. You're sadists, all of you. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Too bad. Wasn't too bad. That was okay. That was okay. Oh Lord. Oh. As always, up early, trying to get this recorded, racing to get this done, racing to get this done because next to the towpath and people are whizzing by. And my new favourite pet hate at the moment. See, I am whinging about people on the towpath. It's people cycling past. And it's not that they're cycling past. It's the fact that instead of wearing earphones like I do and listening to some music and keeping it to myself, people feel the need that you've got to get like a sound block in there, put it in your bag, play your music really loud. It's like, why do you have to why do you have to show the world what music you're listening to? Who cares what music you're listening to? It's like oh, it's, just, it's really annoying. You can hear them coming a mile away. And I know that's why they do it, because they don't want to ring their bell or they're too lazy to ring their bell. But it's like you hear them coming a mile away, then they come near you and it's like you have to I have to stop everything I'm doing and then you have to wait until they bug it off into the background. Bastards. Utter bastards. Anyway, right. Uh, uh let's put on a T. Let's do a T. I need a tea. I've had my coffee. The coffee was okay. Uh, it's a nice sunny day today. It's really bright, really sunny. Uh, uh, yeah, which is good. My solar panels were like this. Need a bit of solar panel action because it's been a bit gloomy recently. So the, the uh, solar panels are not getting the power that they need. So that on, that on, that on. Tea! I think I'm going deaf. I can't hear myself as well as I used to. I think I am going deaf. Uh, right. Right, coming back. Coming back. Da, 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 coming back. Da, da, da. No cake today. No cake. I know. Uh, but what I did do... Oh, these bastards are back. Look at them. Mrs. Crimbles. Mmm. Gloriously gluten-free big chocolate macaroons. Now, even so, though it says gluten-free, I wouldn't know that. Oh, these are these are too delicious. If you haven't had them before, they're basically like a coconut biscuit. It's basically just coconut on top, uh, and then on the bottom is chocolate, and then there's kind of lines of chocolate on top, and it's just it's oh god, it's really good, really good, really nice. But per macaroon, hundred and how much are they? Yeah, hundred and sixty-eight calories. See, this is the problem. I could eat all these in one go, and I probably will. There's six. So what's that? Six to oh, It's over a thousand calories that pack. Oh, yeah. I mean, I did it the other day. I pigged out and stuff. Anyway, uh, so what's going on? We're in lockdown again. Yeah, it's fine. You just chin up, everyone. Chin up. Keep going. It's it's weird being out there because it's not like proper lockdown. Like the the last lockdown when it was lockdown, everyone was like, it's lockdown. And the streets were empty and just weird. Now it's everyone's like, eh, lockdown. It's just another, just a little holiday, they feel like. So, you know, people are out. They're still at the shops. 
I went through uh, Hyde Park the other day and there were some numpties in Hyde Park and they were going, end lockdown, end lockdown. And I was like, uh, have you looked? It literally, we're right next to like Oxford Street and Oxford Street was full of shoppers. It's like, what bit don't you understand? It's like no one's paying any attention to lockdown. It's like people are wearing masks, mostly. I stood outside the tube station yesterday because I was abusing their Wi-Fi and there was always a handful of people who weren't wearing masks and I was like, oh, you sh- I wouldn't let those people on the tube. Think, F them, F them. They can go and walk. That's why I walk everywhere. That's why I, I get take my bike everywhere. Anyway, um, we're in this for another month, so or maybe longer. I reckon it'll be longer. I reckon there'll be another one in January, maybe February. So I think, I think everyone coming back from university, everyone meeting up for Christmas is going to be real nightmare as well because people will go, oh, it's we're, oh, inverted commas. I'm in my little social bubble, and people will come together. And they'll go, oh, yeah, uh, you were all in my bubble. It's like weird. It's people seem to say, oh, th- this is my bubble. But they don't realise that everyone in that group has their own bubble. So even if you're in your little group and you only have five people in that bubble, that one person could have 25 people in separate bubbles. So it's all, it's, it's, there's no definition of bubble. So uh, I'm good. I keep by myself. I'm in my little solitary world. So uh, I'm not a bother to anyone. Uh, so anyway, we're in lockdown, so everyone just plod on and do what you need to do and keep safe. We'll all get through this. Uh, what's happening with me? Not much. The house sale went through last week. Thank F for that. That was a bit terrifying. Um, uh, it's, it's been a long, it's been many years trying to get that done. It's been a long process. It's been legally quite difficult and it was very stressful. And at the end, the last day, last two days, it was like, uh, there's nothing we could do. It was in the hands of the lawyers. I mean, I, I went to text my brother to say, don't call me, don't text me, don't no messages at all, because we'd been messaging every hour. And I went to say, don't message me, because if you message me, that either means everything's gone well, or the house sale has gone through, or everything's collapsed and the house has blown up. So don't message me. And I didn't message him. And weirdly, he didn't message me. And we both went really silent for about 48 hours. And then at three o'clock, an email came through saying, it's done. And we were like, thank fuck for that. God, that's been terrifying. I haven't slept in a long time. so And it's weird. It's like the next day after that, my face felt really weird. Because it's like the stress of dealing with you know, mum's mental decline and grand's mental decline, their legal stuff and all that going on. It's been really stressful. And then on the Friday, my face went really weird. And I couldn't work out why it was my face was weird. Uh, and why I had a weird pain in it. And I realised it wasn't, I hadn't got a weird pain. It's just, I think I'd stopped gritting my teeth. I think I'd done it for so long that now I didn't need to grit my teeth anymore. Now all of a sudden everything was okay. So it's weird. It's a weird weird situation now. So that's all done, which is good. Almost, almost, almost done. Almost at the end now. What's going to be the next thing to come along to really balls up everything? (laughs) Something will happen. Uh, what else is happening? We're gearing up for Christmas. So, when um, I'm still shut, but I'm gearing up for Christmas. So, I will be doing a nice little socially distanced Christmas in my bubble, which would be good. Uh, and then preparing myself for uh, to to go into uh, isolation in January, as mentioned, so I can do boat repairs and then I can go and visit my dad and hopefully be safe enough to go back to the archive. Uh, and we've got Amy coming over for Christmas, which would be good. So uh, bring bring in your uh, acorns and your dog treats again, no doubt. So that'll be good. So that'll be a, a nice little socially distanced Christmas. It'll be very good. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll be there's something different. Tease up. So, pop the water in. I've 
course, by the time Amy listens to this episode, it will already have been Christmas. So, right, let's do some questions. Question number one, get yourselves ready. Don't forget I might balls up these questions very shortly, so uh, that's fine. Uh, Question number one, what was Frederick's middle name? What was Frederick's middle name? Question number two, which part of London was Frederick born? You can't just say East London, it was which part of East London? Question number three, oh, this one's quite difficult. What was the name of the doctor who certified Freddy as dead? That's a difficult one. Uh, What was the name... Oh, question four. What was the name of Freddy's mum, dad and sister? That could be an easy one. Could be. Question five. F. Cope and Co. had two co-directors. Harold Payne was one, but who was the other? Oh, where are you listening? Oh. Question six. What injury did Freddie and John both share? Not share as in they both took turns, haven't they? It's like they both had the same injury. But what injury did Freddie and John both have? Question seven. Which prison was John sentenced to 13 months for burglary at... And where he also attacked an inmate with a hammer. Question eight. The hammer was 16 inches long. But what was its weight? Question nine. What was the name of the painting firm's... What was... Question nine. What was the name of F. Cope & Co.'s paint supervisor? I mentioned his name a couple of times, so can you remember? Question 10. What was the name... This is a difficult one. What was the name of John's landlady? Oh, that's a difficult one. Right, let's go into some extra details. Now, uh, when I was writing this episode, uh, obviously I I start with a little bit of a plan. I found this uh, uh, file in the archives. I pulled it out. It was interesting. It was a little bit convoluted in places and I didn't know how to tell the story. But then I decided, you know, I'll do a... I'll tell it a different. When I started writing it, I, I thought I'll tell it a different way. I'll tell you how the murder happened. I, I'll show you the, all the aspects of the murder, and then make it make you think, "Oh, this looks really clever." But really, when you look at it, it's not really that clever. It's just a bit of a balls up. So, uh, but then as I got nearer the end, then I realised again that the kind of the the latter part of the investigation kind of really didn't need to be told after that because John kind of flees after that point. So. Um, we'll go into that part of the story because pretty much everything you've heard already I've I've already put in the episode. So as mentioned, the police turned up. Uh, they did a local appeal. They started talking to all the employees and ex-employees who were there. Obviously, uh, uh, there were uh, careful lists of everyone who'd employed. So they're able to go through the list and they did them all and they were able to track it down to the fact that John Carragher was the only person who they, they were unable to track down um as mentioned there were no fingerprints in the room uh except those who were already known to be in the office and but mostly freddy's obviously this is because most of the workmen would have been wearing gloves anyway because they're workmen um and there's lots of blood in the room and all of it was uh freddy's um so because they knew 
that uh, John Carragher was missing. Uh, They knew where he lived. He was at uh, room 15 on the third floor of 25 St. George's Square. I've put a little photo of it on the uh, patrons. You can have a look at that. (coughs) I went where to took pictures of the pubs and places like that. So it's not really essential, but you can kind of have a look at it. And I've done a nice comparison photo of uh f cope and co as it looks today it's identical as when when it did in 1968 it hasn't changed at all uh there's a little video as well um so they went to uh room 15 on the third floor of 25 st george's square over in pimlico uh police spoke to the landlady whose name shall not be mentioned at this point yes uh and they searched his room um uh now it's it's kind of interesting that um uh, that day um this was just after what day was this what day was this yeah second second of april so he'd actually come back from uh as i mentioned he'd he'd flown over to ireland he'd actually come back by this day he came back into his flat and he walked in and then he saw um police actually in his flat he saw police in the bathroom opening uh, going through the system of the toilet and all that and he walked in he was like oh that's weird and then he just walked out it's like the, the the police didn't know that that's the man that they were looking for because obviously this is a um, a boarding house and I think that they said there was like 30 different tenants there anyway so um, you know he wasn't checked the police were too busy searching for all the evidence that were in there when they went into the room they found his blue cardigan which had leather buttons very stylish blue trousers black shirt black shoes all were flecked with blood and all as mentioned were covered in uh, type A blood which was the same as Frederick Monk obviously this is 1968 so they couldn't determine it any further than that you know they didn't have DNA then so all they could say was what blood group it was they knew that John Carragher had a different blood group, so uh, they were able to say that this is this is the same blood group as uh, Freddie Monk. Uh, da, 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 da. His left shoe apparently was absolutely soaked in blood, but they found no hammer when they were there. Uh, on the 9th of April, uh, they managed to uh, they went to Waterman's, which was uh, a, the rival firm over in Mayfair. Uh, and they 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 saw that uh, uh, John Carragher left behind his navy blue tool bag, his holder, which had all of his tools in it. Inside, obviously, were you know scissors, some putty knives, a screwdriver, a sponge, a pair of gentleman's overalls, a piece of glass paper. But they found no hammer. Uh, the hammer was never found. It's it's still uncertain to this day where it is. Uh, the autopsy was performed by Professor Keith Simpson at Guy's Hospital. Uh, sorry, it was done at uh, Westminster Mortuary, um, and da, 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 they said that Freddie had a double crushing of the skull behind the left ear, bruising, and lots of bruising. Uh, four split wounds. Uh, four. Sorry, I was thinking about something else. Then four split wounds over the top of his right head. A large fissure from his right ear across to his right eye socket. Um, the eyelids and eyebrows uh, uh, of his face were swollen, and the uh, the bridges of his bridge of his nose was broken. Injuries consistent with his head being on a flat surface at the time that the hammer blows happened. Uh, his brain uh, had widespread bruising and hemorrhages. Uh, he had a large bruise to his right shoulder, as mentioned. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, as it was, um, that's where the first attack happened. That was the one that sent him off balance. He had no defensive wounds, so this was all done from behind. Uh, so he's, he never faced his killer at any point during the attack, and he never got to put his hands up. 
Um, uh, what else is on there? So let's whiz through all this stuff. Ah, uh, sorry, I'm just so uh, John Carragher uh, gave a statement to the police when he was finally arrested. He gave a statement to the police. Oh, my tea! Jeez, I forgot about my tea. So busy doing those questions, I entirely forgot that I've got a tea on the go. I know, a tea, a cup of tea. There we go. How can, I, how can I forget that I've got a tea on the go? That's the most important thing of the day. Uh, so John Carragher gave a statement to the police at the West End, uh, West End Central Police Station, which is just off Regent Street. It's the same place where the Blackout Ripper was uh, arrested. Uh, it's no longer... You can't go in there as a police station anymore, but it's still used as a police station. Um, John Carragher said, I was working at Waterman's... On Friday the 29th of March, I left at lunchtime because there wasn't much to do on the job and I was working on and I was nearly finished. Uh, there was only half an hour's work left, which was about right. That's what his colleagues said. But, you know, he still disappeared off. I went for my lunch. I had been paid that morning. Apparently he hadn't. Um, it was a nice hot day and I decided to go to Ireland for the weekend. I was looking around the shops on Oxford Street where I'd been working. I went home. I got washed and went to do some shopping and bought a ticket to Ireland. I went to Boxwood Street and had had another meal. I walked down Wardour Street as far as Leicester Square. Uh, I worked for a firm only two minutes away, which is right. I went down to Copes on Whitcomb Street uh, <coughs> to see if I could get back with them. They promised me that when they had a vacancy, I would come back. I went down into the print yard, found nobody there, which is a lie. There was quite a few, because uh, don't forget this is payday. I went into the print shop. The place was deserted. I decided to see if anyone was upstairs, which wouldn't make any sense because the supervisors weren't upstairs. They would all be downstairs. The people would hire them. I knocked on the door, got no reply. The light was out. I came out. Nobody was in the yard. I then went back to Oxford Circus and took the tube uh, to Euston. Uh, the train to Haysham at 6.50pm from Euston. And I went home, got changed, washed. Uh, hang on. Uh, it was, he said that that night he uh, got the train uh, from Haysham and the boat straight over to Belfast and he arrived at 7 o'clock he said I booked a cabin under the name of Foster I didn't go into this in the story because it was just just, it's just um, he said he booked the name uh, he booked a cabin on the boat under the name of Foster because I thought it would be easier to identify when they shouted out a list of people who they have booked up. Right, so instead of using his name John Carragher, which is pretty easy to say, and obviously, you know, there's probably a lot of people called Carragher or Callagher or whatever, uh, he decided to use the name Foster because he, he said they thought that would be easier for them to identify him. What utter bollocks. Um... Uh, he was in Ireland. Uh, he said, when I got to Belfast, I went to, uh, I had a meal. I looked around town. I spent a few hours looking at the shops. I decided to go to Dublin and arrived back about 4.30 p.m. Uh, on Saturday, he went He went to go and see a film, which was very nice of him. He said he went to go and see a Paul Newman film, which was a prison film, which would, would have been cool, Han Luke. Uh, and while he was there, he also went to see Blue Murder at St. Trinian's. Lovely. So even though he just murdered a man, he just did decide to go on a holiday and he had a nice little time and he wanted to watch a couple of films and he didn't seem that bothered about what he'd done. Uh, and then he got a flight back to London Airport. It kind of seems strange that he'd get the boat there, but the flight back. 
but that's what he did. He arrived back, and as mentioned, he got back to his flat. I uh, I found the door of my room open, and the place was in disorder. Obviously, the police had already been in there and uh, uh, ransacked the room trying to find stuff. I saw somebody in the toilet opposite my room. Uh, they were still in there at that point. They seemed to be doing something with my cistern. He looked very much like a policeman. I went to the landlady. Um, uh, so I, I then went to uh, Victoria to find another flat and I didn't find anything. I rung up my landlady and asked for her, whose name I shall not mention. Uh, I said who I was. She was a long pause. She answered again. I asked her why my room was in disorder and where my clothes were. Obviously, the police had taken them by that point. She gave no reply to this only um saying to come around to the basement door i then realized something was wrong and the person i saw was a policeman i didn't know what sort of trouble i was in i went and found another flat in clapham uh and again he reiterated i went to ireland because it was a nice weekend uh details uh, as mentioned he got uh, uh, the boat to uh lisbon under the name of foster it was cabin e14 on the duke of lancaster boat from Haitian to belfast uh, and he got a flight back and he uh, this is all proved because he had a boarding ticket on him flight be6537 from london arrived uh, at london airport on the 2nd of april 3 15 p.m Oh, what else we got? What else we got? Uh, I didn't put this in the story as well because it just—it's just. I mean, he, the the guy was just an idiot. Like he'd he'd committed a robbery, he'd committed a murder, but he didn't nick much. But he he was still bragging about what he'd stolen. So we still don't know what he had stolen, or whether we don't know actually whether there was any money on Frederick Monks, or whether he'd stolen money from Frederick Monks' wallet, or whether there was money in the office that he actually had found but was just not listed or we you know, it's, but everything in the office seemed to be in order so uh, but apparently he did have some extra money on him he had it we know that he'd he'd said he'd saved up some money from a, a painting job he'd done at wilton crescent uh prior to that so uh, maybe it was that but he seemed to be going around town boasting about stuff he visited uh, a dry cleaners at 175 Vauxhall Bridge Road, uh, Pimlico, and the lady who ran it, June Coppard, he said, told her he'd had a lovely time, a very expensive holiday. Uh, uh, da, da, da. He was wearing a very expensive jumper, it said. It was a, a, a crombie, a blue and white roll neck uh, that apparently cost him about £2, which is about 60 quid, uh, no, probably about 50 around that point. No. It'd be less. Sorry, I'm I'm thinking forties prices. Um, so he he seems to be bragging to a lot of people about the money that he spent and and shit like that, which doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, what else we got? When he was at the police station again, the police questioned him. I mentioned this in the story, but it was kind of like, um, uh, he'd been in there, and the police said, uh. The police asked him questions about what he'd been, where he'd done, and he'd 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 said to them, "I didn't, I didn't uh, kill uh, Frederick Monks at F. Copes and Co." And it was like, "But we didn't ask you that. We didn't ask you about Freddie Monks. We just said a man, and we just said a place." It's like the police deliberately tripped him up at this point, and then he kind of just fell into it. What an idiot! Uh, what else did we have? So I'm just just going through all. Oh yeah, no, when he was arrested. So this was at the Clarence Public Duchess of Clarence Public House, which is on Vauxhall Bridge Road. I think is at one seven one. It's now been demolished. 
Um, basically, they would get, uh, had a surveillance on him. They saw him going into a pub. Again, this is this is like two doors down from the the um, uh, dry cleaners. He he didn't give a shit about the fact that he just committed a murder. Uh, police walked in, showed him his warrant card. Um, said we're here to speak to um, John Callahan. They got his name wrong because don't forget he uses multiple aliases. He said I'm not John Callahan, I'm John, I'm John Carragher, which is true. Uh, Detective cut. Detective Constable Groenland was there. He said, I'm from the murder squad. And John said, murder squad? That's serious, isn't it? You've got me for murder this time, have you? And that's when they took him to the police station. And even at the police station, he was bragging about the fact that he'd had a nice holiday and he'd said he'd spent about 150 quid. Uh, what else was there? Oh, I didn't put that in. Didn't I took something out. Mm. Now, as mentioned before, do you know, the, the, the people who... Or was it uh, George Cope, who was the decorator there? He was the one who uh, had, had been propositioned by uh, uh, by John previously at the pub, saying, do you want to do this robbery with him? He'd only just met him the night before, and obviously George was trying to go straight, so he said no. He went straight to the police and kind of alerted the police that there was a potential robbery going to happen. Police had already got this on record, so when the murder did happen, they were able to go, oh, this is this person. They did an ID parade, and George and his girlfriend... At, at the same ID parade went, yep, that's the man, he's right there. To literally it's it's quite an easy case for the police. They wrapped it up in like a couple of days. Even though even though you think about it, they've got no fingerprints, they've got no witnesses, they've got no murder weapon. Uh nothing was really left at the scene, but they were able to piece enough of it together based on just the incompetence of of what uh what John had done and uh you know, if he would have planned this properly he probably would have got away with it as mentioned before you know you've got you've got a moment where freddie's walking back from the bank with 639 pounds in his pockets that's almost 11,000 pounds today freddie's in his late 50s is a little bit overweight he's got a disabled leg you know he's he's, he's not he's carrying the money in his pockets if you know that and you see him pop on a mask do you know throw him to the ground, nick his jacket, empty his pockets, it's going to take you, what, 30 seconds, then you run off. If you were in a disguise, who's going to know it was you? But he didn't. He waited until Freddie was in his locked office and he, therefore John had to go into a place where he was known by everyone to go into a locked office and then commit, then commit the robbery there, of which he balls it up badly. He really balls it up. So, uh, i tell you what, let's do the questions. da 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 Oh, why is... Oh, what's... Oh, hang on. Sorry. I'm... I was just checking my laptop. Something, I pressed the wrong button and uh, a big weird thing happened. Anyway. Right, let's do this. So, uh, answers to the questions. Let's hope I didn't balls many of them up. I did quite... Uh, I did okay there. I did okay. <coughs> oh, oh. Right. Question number one. What was Frederick's middle name? His middle name was Ernest. Question number two. What part of Lo- what part of East London was Freddie born in? He was born in Hoxton. I bet he loved avocado. Yes, Hoxton is one of those areas that used to be shit. Now it's meant to be trendy, but I just think, oh, it's, oh, 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 it's been ruined. Uh, question three. Uh, what was the name of the doctor who certified Freddie as dead? Oh, did you get that one? That was a hard one. Uh, 
It was Dr. Jeffrey Diamond. Question four. What was the name of Freddie's mum, dad and sister? Uh, it's a relatively easy one. Uh, Freddie's dad was also called Frederick. He was Frederick Senior. Freddie's mum was called Ada and his sister was also called Ada. Nice, easy way to name your family. Uh, question five. F. Cope and Co. had two co-directors. Harold Payne and who was the other one? His name was Terence Bacon. Bacon, man. Terence Bacon. Question six. What injury did Freddie and John both have? Both had a limp. So Freddie uh, obviously had a, a, an accident many years ago and uh, therefore his leg was shortened and he had a limp to his left leg. John had broken his leg many times and he'd broken his right leg. So actually both of them had limps. Uh, but I don't, I don't think John's wasn't actually that bad. Uh, question seven. Which prison was John sentenced to 13 months... Barely read that. Question seven. Which prison was John sentenced to for 13 months for burglary at? That's not well written. And where uh, and where he also attacked an inmate with a hammer? That was Wandsworth. Question eight. Uh, the hammer was 16 inches long, but what was its weight? The answer was half a kilo. Oddly, the other night, that is the weight of the tiramisu that I ate all by myself. I bought a nice big tiramisu. It was half a kilo and I ate it in one sitting and it lasted 12 minutes. It's nice. I just pigged my way through it. Question nine. What was the name of the firm's... What was the name of the paint supervisor at, a, at F. Cope & Co? What was the name of the paint supervisor at F. Cope & Co? It was Raymond McShay. Uh, and question 10 what was the name of John's landlady that was a really difficult one it was Mary Sexton I briefly mentioned it I said Mary Sexton's boarding house Ooh, right there we go good that was that was good that was done so that's that I hope you enjoyed that that was all good fun we had fun things are happening etc right I'm going to go and edit this and uh have a cup of tea and just power on and uh, all stuff. Anyway, that's that. I've got Mrs. Crimble's. Look. Oh, Mrs. Crimble's cakes to have. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Thank you, Mrs. Crimble's. I also I had a Terry's chocolate orange last night all by myself. Yummy. That was nice. Well, whilst watching Bake Off. Mm, Bake Off, Terry's chocolate orange. That's all good. Anyway, that's that done. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We shall be back next week with another exciting episode. And then we start... A four-parter, which takes us into Christmas, I think. Is that right? I think. I can't remember. I've lost it. I think it is. I think I think it is. We've got a four-parter that takes us into Christmas, and then and then we're done for the year. Oh, I can't wait to have a rest. Right, that's good. Hope you're all well. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.